Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost here without my co-host Peter Linus. This is Being Human. So a couple of weeks ago, Peter and I got to sit down and chat over Zoom with the preeminent mind that is Mark Sayers, author, thinker, speaker and pastor at Red Church Melbourne. We got to chat about lockdowns, navigating a network society, story clashes and the power of Christian communities living out a better story. This is the first bonus episode in a two-part conversation and we do hope you enjoy it. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you guys are in the middle of lockdown, in Mel- not in the middle, you're hopefully maybe coming to the end of a long lockdown. What's it like in your part of the world? Yeah, so we we had a second wave at the beginning of our winter and um, went into yeah what the world's longest lockdown is. And we really only came out of lockdown. It was still, our non-lockdown was still a lockdown. So I think I got to visit my brother's house and family for one day. He lives about eight minutes from here and... Um, and then we went back into lockdown. So it was pretty strict. It's been, um, you can't travel more than five kilometers. You can only leave the house once a day to go to the supermarket. Um, curfew from eight to five. Um, and then we um, just started to ease out of that. So it's been pretty incredible. I was reading today, it's the only, I think we're the only place in the world, maybe Singapore as well, which has stopped a second wave. Yesterday, we today we had one case, which they now reckon may have been a reinfection, so zero cases, and we've sort of had the ones or two. So they've just brought it right down. So it's been absolutely fascinating insight <laughs> into Melbourne culture um, and Australia. And, and I think Australia and New Zealand have just operated in this completely different way to the rest of the West, which has been absolutely fascinating for me to observe. Yeah, whereas we're at the other end of the, we're going back into some version of lockdown. So I, I guess most of our listeners probably know you're you're in Melbourne, obviously, from that. I'm sitting in Northern Ireland. Joe is in London. We're back into sort of lockdown. London's on its way back into a lockdown, I think. Yeah, indeed. I mean, so you've got schools closed over half term. Um, uh, uh, we're on the precipice, I think, of um, of seeing things shift over here. But a friend of mine's in in lockdown, or has been in lockdown in Melbourne, and it's day one hundred and fifty six. Um, yes, <laughs> goodness me, is it's exhausting. Um, and part, of, yeah. and part of that brings us into one of the things we wanted to chat about was just this kind of speed of change that people find. So we're we're living in this world where the rate of change is accelerating, and you've talked a bit about that. I mean, the virus is one sign of that, I guess. Um, do you want to like talk a little bit more about what, I mean, you've, you've talked about this network world concept mm. and, and the virus being a, a sign of that. What, what do you mean by that? And, and what do you think mm. some of the, the, the impacts of that are? Mm. So I think the big front of mind thing for the world, because everyone's going through it, you know, like I, I was looking at the news before and yeah, I was seeing how you guys are going to more of a lockdown and yeah, but Kenya, Kenya's looking at different parts going to lockdown. Argentina is I think a million people in Argentina, in fact, so it's this truly global experience, which is really unusual to have everywhere experience this at once. So I think looking at that, we can see oh, this is this is all about the pandemic at the moment. But I think the pandemic is rather uh, a symptom of a bigger change in the world. Um, the world is you know, increasingly connected. I think part of the interesting thing with like Melbourne's response to to COVID is Melbourne is so connected to China now. And, um, you know, my area has got so many people who uh, are from mainland China. Uh, when the schools, uh, when we when it first happened, the schools um, had um, 
uh, basically anyone who'd been in China had to stay home for two weeks. So there were schools here with half the kids away who'd been in China, not just Chinese Australian kids, but literally had been in China in the last few weeks. So it was just amazing to see the amount of interaction. So what that says is we're increasingly a connected world. We're a networked world. So I think the big change behind all of this, I see, I see COVID-19 as rather as an indicator of how connected we have become. Um, you know, in the last few days, um, there are protests um, in Nigeria, Lagos, has been shut down today by massive protests. There's protests in, in Chile. Um, you know, there is protest in Thailand around the world. And this is also part of this accelerated change where there's protest movements around the world copying each other, using technology, being inspired by this network thing to sort of question power. So I see the pandemic as an accelerator of changes that were already happening in our world. And that's, I mean, you've talked, I heard you talk a little bit about the change from the industrial age to the network age. I mean, that's been going on for some time. Has this just crystallized the moment in terms of the pandemic? Or I'm trying to work out what the impact of that is, because I remember my brother joking that the future is the World Wide Web 10 years ago, and we all sort of mocked him as a family. We're like, no kidding, brother, of course. You know, so how, how does this virus change what was already going on in that moment? Mm. I mean, one of the, I think, the comparable moments to what we're going through is um, the printing press. And when the printing press came into being, um, it facilitated the Protestant Reformation. It also facilitated so much of nationalism and different nations having an understanding of their identity. Europe went from sort of almost this sort of Holy Roman Empire. It split into all these different fragments and factions and nations and caused so much change. Um, you know, and then went for a period really into sort of the 18th, 19th century, we had this reconsolidation of power, uh, particularly with the Industrial Revolution. And then it was somewhat centralized. You know, you had like the British Empire or the French Empire and these central elements of power. And that really is gone until only a few decades ago. I think in the 1960s, it began to unravel. Um, and really we had the height of American power. But what we're seeing now, I think is, we're starting to see the effects. Like you think the internet, it's only really 20 years old, but I think with social media and the globalization of the internet, what people don't realize too is how many millions of people are coming online you know, by the week and how big Facebook and these, these things are growing. Um, so I think we're seeing a similar turning point. Um, and what we're gonna see is, a, what we're seeing is a decentralization of power at the moment. Um, so again, you know, those protest movements We've got protest movements around the world. It may be about Black Lives Matters. It may be sparked by the price of Metro in Santiago and Chile. It may be sparked in, in Lagos, Nigeria by protests against the SARS police unit. But the mechanism in which people are doing it, using social media, um, connecting, um, fragmenting, um, you know, I think that that's what we're about to live through this really decentralized period. And we were picking up on that, Joe, weren't we, in our first season? You want to come in there on that? <laughs> Yeah, no, I was, I was um, going to say, what effect do you think um, the difference between travel has and the digital world? I mean, I'm really conscious that I wonder whether one of the reasons why the UK had such a bad initial outbreak and why, again, we've struggled with our second is that we have more air, air, international air travel than any other country in the world. We move. Um the summer was a terrible idea um, for the for Europe because we literally just smeared coronavirus all over all of the nations. Nations that were doing relatively well were infected as everybody moved around. Obviously, with the digital world, movement isn't necessary in the same way because we can connect through people 
through Zoom like we're doing right now. And yet we still seem to be so connected by by physical movement as well. How is how are those two things in conflict or in symbiosis? How are those two things wrestling through in this moment, do you think? Yeah, so I think there's two network changes in the world, and you've named them both there. One is globalization, the movement of people. So we have people like, like London's one of the biggest um, transport hubs in the world. And you're 100% right. I saw an amazing infographic of Europe's, like when Europe shut a lot of the internal borders, like coronavirus went down, and as soon as it opened, it was like following it, and it just went Pow. Australia has done better, New Zealand's done better, because we shut the borders. I cannot legally leave my country at this point in time. And they're now saying... Um, uh, you know, that we may not leave our country until 2022. Um, and there's this sense that everyone who comes in has to go into quarantine. So there's a, there's a sense that that yeah, movement is, is something which spreads coronavirus around the world, but also movement spread different ideas around the world. And then also the digital element is there's an infectiousness to ideas. And so you see these ideas going around the world. One really interesting one is, you know, there's been lots of, um, uh, you know, chatter about, um, or discussion rather than chatter, you know, about the rise of the far right in, in America and, and, you know, the rise of even, even in the UK. What's more interesting to me is the rise of far right in the non-West. Um, so you see the rise of the far right in places amongst Malay people. Um, uh, throughout Southeast Asia, in India, the rise of far-right uh, movement. So you see how ideas are moving around the world and coming into the West, out of the West. So there's this thing where we used to have, just as people didn't move around as much, our stories didn't move around as much. And so much of the conversation at the moment is actually like about how stories can come in. The current US election is so much of a discussion around people, migration, driving things. So that's the movement of people, but then also Russian disinformation, fake news. So the movement of people and ideas are two of the biggest drivers in all of this at the moment. So we've talked, we're in this being human project and, and a big part of what we're talking about is this kind of story clash idea that the where does the God story interact, intersect with the cultural story and stories because there are so many and those cultural stories are at odds with each other and we've been touching on the edges of uh, Charles Taylor and everybody's story is contested, everybody feels that pressure upon them because no story gets a free pass anymore there's no oh i've got a single way of view in the world my way is fine uh, the neutrality piece is gone and we've got these constant micro stories the macro stories and sitting at odds with each other um, and if i hear you you're saying basically network days has just accelerated all of that and that's the speed of change piece that we feel i think it's rabbi mm. jonathan sachs talks about we live in an age of accelerated cultural climate change so it's not just yes. You know, we see environmental climate change, he's not denying, he's saying that's there, but we've got this cultural piece that we won't even talk about. And then the accelerated nature of it and the speed at which it's shifting family, community and society is the three that he wants to highlight in that moment. And I find that really powerful argument for where we find ourselves in this season. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that I heard someone called story wars. And I think that's really one of the things about our age that if you think about like, so much in the West, I think we thought of things in these big blocks. So we thought about here's the church and then here's the culture. So there'd be all these discussions. How does the church reach the culture or how do we understand the, the, the culture or 
British culture or Australian culture when you realize like what on earth is British culture? And, you know, there's elements of British culture, but you could pull 20 people off the street. You could walk outside and just pull 20 people off the street and all of them would be living very different stories, quite radically different stories. So I think that it's it's the, the visual I have from it, instead of like, we think about the church here and then here's this monolith of the culture. We're now one dot amongst many dots in this competing sort of story age. And I think the real, people talk about culture wars and flashpoints and ethics, but so much of that I think now is contained in the bouncing off the, these stories and I actually think it's it's actually a positive thing for the church because as all stories are contested now, it used to feel like just our story is contested and this is accepted. But there's now sort of almost this hermeneutic of suspicion around everything at this point in time. So, Joe, you're you're our comms chief. Hermeneutic of suspicion. What does that even mean? <laughs> just for those who don't know. <laughs> and then this is your area. You love this where the stories bounce into each other and intersect. I do. Um, so I'm going to guess because that is an unfamiliar phrase to me. Um, but we were interviewing. We've got some new graduates starting um, at the EA this uh, week, in fact. Um, and one of them was talking about 20s and 30s millennials and Zen Dead Zen. Gen Z even. Um, and she was saying that they are a hypercritical, hyper-skeptical generation. They don't trust anything. Everything that is put in front of them has to be evaluated and critiqued and deconstructed. Um, and I, I'm guessing that, that it's the way we study the world around us. It's the way we make sense. We question everything. We educate our kids to critical thinking um, is not what you know, it's how you understand and gain knowledge that's important. Um, but that means that everything is, it's up to you to decide what you think is valuable, credible, authentic, real. Um, uh, you are the only authority in your knowledge base and in your understanding. And what we're seeing is that that is very budging position to to set a society on or a culture on because it just means all of these stories bounce off each other all the time. Yeah, I've heard it said that 20 or 30 years ago you had the much the standard skepticism uh, you know the classic questions did Jesus exist did he live did he die and you responded with an evidential base to that and you had that traditional kind of apologetics as traditional to people of my age anyway whereas now we've just deconstructed everything and nobody cares about that it's it's a doubter's doubt it's it's, a, it's another level everything any move to explain something is a power move and we want to deconstruct everything yeah i mean i i thought we've we've gone from what do you know to does it work to how does this make me feel I mean, we've gone all the way down to the emotive self um, and it's it's not a very robust place to to base your life on. Mm. So I'm guessing it's interesting to like, oh, sorry. Go. No, no, no. I was going to say one level we're saying <laughs> the pain, maybe for our listeners and people coming in, we all feel it. Don't think that you're alone if you're feeling that level of disconnect and just discombobulation. Somebody used that word the other day. I was like, this is probably the moment to use it. It actually works. This is it. <laughs> we do feel like, whoa, just kind of overwhelmed. Um, so I want to say that's okay in a sense to feel. That's not surprising given the scale and speed of change and everything we're seeing. It's not a place we want to stay in forever, but don't be, don't be sort of surprised if you feel that. But there are ways to move through it as well. But sorry, Mark, you were coming in. I was going to say one thing I found interesting is um, just reading a little bit about what now people are calling um, political or ideological, um, uh, oh, what are they calling it, um, fluidity. So basically they were making the comment that what millennials got into gender fluidity and sexual fluidity, Gen Z or Zoomers are now into political fluidity. 
And it was this fascinating article about how people now are like tell this story of like, well, I began as a Marxist and then I became a monarchist and then I'm over here. And just a completely fascinating, bizarre, like on TikTok, like there's all these now, like these groups of Zoomers who are into like North Korea um, and, you know, Pinochet from Chile, just the, like just the strangest things. But almost now it's like this accepted that like I was I was following Pinochet and then I became a Tory and now I'm following the Canadian you know, liberal Democrats or something, you know, but I just, that idea that not even you stick to one story any now, that there's an evolution of your stories bouncing off each other all the time. Cause I think there's new things that come onto our horizon, um, you know, all the time that we have to, because we're so connected to the world, there's new things continually appearing. So it's, I mean, interesting, like one thing I was thinking about is like, you know, we, we're having this conversation about race at the moment in so many parts of the West. So like, how do we talk about that? One of the biggest issues in the world with race at the moment, which is spilling out, is the conflict currently between Armenians and Azeris, which is in many other countries. So in America, in Glendale, there's now Armenians going onto the streets, there's Azeris protesting, there's things happening in Russia. Um, I've not heard a single evangelical Christian help me understand what's a Christian approach to that conflict, um, because it's not even on our radar yet, yet it's actually on the street. So it means that we need these increasingly complex, like ways, I, I say that part of it is we've moved from a complicated world, which might be like, how do we deal with these racial issues, how we've understood it, to now a completely complex world, um, where, you know, how do you understand a world that's getting increasingly complex and stories bouncing off each other? And so how does a meta story, I mean, the, the critique in postmodernism and, you know, was, oh, your meta story as Christians doesn't work. You have a big overarching story that doesn't work. We've all broken down into individual stories. And there was almost a sense, well, hold on, those individual stories were now so fragmenting. There was maybe an openness to a meta story. Is that too simple? Is that, are we saying, yes, there is some truth to that? Because you're saying there's more and more micro stories clashing and people are actually shifting stories almost week by week and the speed at which they can get consumed into another story. I remember you telling me once about a Southern Baptist lady who in four weeks converted basic to ISIS online, mm -hmm. just the speed at which, you know, and I've had friends do something not dissimilar in terms of how quickly in commuting, because suddenly they're on a podcast, they're on an hour each way in 10 hours a week, suddenly they're consuming of material, which is way more than they were ever getting from church or a small group or any other kind of class environment. So they would consume vast amounts of material and go down rabbit holes really mm -hmm. quickly. So I guess just we maybe bring this bit to a clue, like how do we as Christians hold in that completely conflicted, clashing kind of cultural moment? I think there's, an, there's one thing that, that's particularly true of this moment is that there's a performative element to things, that there's an element where it's like we're trying on, um, in the contemporary world, this is not everywhere, we're trying on different identities. and. And because of the fluidity of this and the fact that in a sense, I think we're disorientated. Also what's happening is the big stories have regained um, a sense of importance. We've seen the rise of nationalism. In the UK, um, I saw, you know, like I saw some footage in 1966 when England won the World Cup. And what was fascinating, everyone just had Union Jacks. There were no England flags. Um, but now you're seeing more and more you know, flags around the world. You're seeing more regionalism. People are looking for a sense of, I think it's David Goodhart had the somewheres and anywhere. So there are people who are, I could live anywhere. I can take on any story, but there's other people who are deeply defining themselves to a particular, you know, 
place. And, you know, even you look in the UK now, some of the language between the north and south of England around lockdown and, you know, Andy Burnham, one of the, I think he's the mayor of Manchester. It's almost like north versus south. So there is a sense that people are looking to religion. Look at you know, Hinduism in India. India is, you know, moved from sort of this sense of being a secular country to now very much defined by Hinduism when it's actually a multicultural place. So I think there is a desire that we'll increasingly see for the bigger stories. But also even more than that, for actually to live for a story, um, of moving from just playing with with stories to actually living them. So I feel like there's the ideological communication of different stories, but there's actually something magnetic, and and people are drawn in when you live the truest story. You know, I would believe that there's something about the Holy Spirit that actually enables a community who, are, you know, and you begin said this, like you know, one of the best witnesses of the gospel is actually a community of believers who are living out the gospel story. And I actually think that's increasingly something which is going to gain traction when people are like, I've heard all this, I actually want to see it now. And so it's not just about telling the meta story, it's actually living the meta story, I think is the increasing cut through in our complex world. Wow. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to kind of leave this this first little round that we've had together. Um, the, the cut through of the meta story in this moment, but in lived community. And that's one of the things we wanted to focus on too, is this discipleship element, the reality of this, that we can get in our heads in this moment, but actually it's going to be the living out uh, of uh, what it is to be uh, part of a kingdom community that's really going to set us apart in this cultural context. Thanks so much for listening. Do subscribe to catch part two of our conversation with Mark Sayers out next week. Until then, please like, share, do keep in touch. Check us out at thebeinghumanproject.co.uk. Take care and God bless.